Welcome to the Local Japan Podcast. I was lucky to go home to Los Angeles for about a month, and I did a lot of visiting of important architectural sites, which is really insightful for me and the project I'm going to embark on this month and probably for the next year, hopefully not more than two years, but uh, I'm sure it'll be a long renovation process. In any case, the, the first one I went to was in Pasadena called the Gamble House, and that was created by the Green and Green Architects, who were children of the arts and crafts movement of the early 1900s. And that house was astounding. I used to see it all the time, driving around, living in that area. But I never went in until now. Yeah, they're just total, absolute geniuses. I've been reading some books on the arts and crafts movement, so I think I would like to cover that in the podcast sometime. The influence of Japanese architecture in the green and green house uh, was was so apparent. They visited the Chicago World Fair and there was a Japanese exhibition and that was one of the first times where Japanese architecture was brought to the West in a very public way and the green and green architects saw that and they incorporated that into a lot of their houses, especially in the West Coast in California, where in the if you look up pictures of, of the Gamble House, you'll see really large beams. Um, you'll see a lot of yeah, like exposed beams. You'll see, uh, I don't know, like these different architectural details that look like Tory gates, almost. The second place I went to was the, um, the Hollyhock House, which was created by the famous Frank Lloyd Wright. And that house recently became a UNESCO World Heritage Site because there are a select few Frank Lloyd Wright homes that have become designated as culturally important by UNESCO, and the Hollyhock House is one of them. But these sites are scattered all across the U.S. The Hollyhock House is actually the only UNESCO World Heritage Site in the city of Los Angeles. So I took a tour there, and... That place was also incredible. Um, the interesting thing is, I was reading a book on Frank Lloyd Wright and Japan. It was actually a really poorly written book. I think it was one of those academic books that some professor wrote just to to get a citation or something, but was not accessible at all. So that one I will definitely not cover on the podcast. But one thing I did learn is that Frank Lloyd Wright also was at the Chicago World Fair and also did witness the Japanese exhibit. In that house, you can also see some some of the Japanese influence, a lot of oriental artwork. Uh, but the thing that Frank, makes Frank Lloyd Wright so special is his, his use of space is just unbelievable. So you go through a really tight corridor to enter the house, and then as you walk through, you enter the living room, which is expansive and it almost looks like a vaulted ceiling and so you get a really large sense of relief from leaving the constricted hallway and entering this expanded room and you feel that throughout the whole house it's like a i don't know it almost feels like the house is alive so that was something i really took away from him and something i hopefully can try to incorporate in my project so I highly recommend visiting both of those places. Uh, the third place I went to was the Hunt- Huntington Garden, 
which is also in Pasadena. Huntington was a railroad man during the expansion of, of the U.S. going westward. He had this gigantic mansion, which is being converted into a library because he collected a lot of books and a lot of art and um, also a garden. And like many wealthy Americans of his age, he was interested in the Far East and the artwork there. And so he he created a Chinese garden, he created a Japanese garden, um, and they also house some authentic Japanese buildings. Something that is really cool, though, is the Japanese garden has been there for a very long time, and the homes there, the, the buildings there have been there for for decades. I don't know if it's been a century yet, but very, very old, a beautiful old bridge as well. It's pretty famous, it's been highlighted in a couple of films, even, in TV shows. Uh, but anyway, there's a new addition to the Japanese garden. I think it was just installed this year. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it started in 2019, got disrupted due to the pandemic, and then recently finished just in 2023. And it's the it was donated by a wealthy Japanese businessman who lives in California, but he had an abandoned house that he inherited from his family. Like many Akia that we know of, it was laying bare and disintegrating in Japan, but he had the financial means to demolish it and then ship it over to the United States where they hired a bunch of Japanese architects, flew them out to California, and they rebuilt it in the Huntington Garden. So it was donated by this businessman. It's called the Japanese Heritage Shoya House, and it's actually 320 years old. The project reminds me very deeply of Yoshihiro Takeshita, who I've mentioned probably every single time on this podcast, and his book, Japanese Country Style where he does the same thing. He takes what he believes to be culturally important buildings, um, tears them down, preserving all of the wood, and then rebuilds the structure in other places, whether that's in Tokyo or in Hawaii or wherever. Kind of a similar thing with the Shoya house. And they also had to adhere to California code. So that was pretty interesting to learn about too, where they where in Japan they they have a pier and beam kind of foundation, but it's just the house is standing on stilts, which are standing on top of large rocks and boulders. But in California, they had a slab foundation, which then was standing on a pier and beam. So they, they did some, some changes. They also had to tie it down with probably rebar uh, to adhere to California code. So it's really interesting to learn about the modern standards and how the Japanese carpenters and then the American contractors who supported the build, the rebuild, how they work together to make it work. Um, probably pretty complicated, a lot of logistics, but they made it happen. And I highly, highly recommend going to that if you are in Los Angeles. I think those three sites, I think are, are just perfect if you're interested in Japanese architecture, uh, architecture in general, but then just beautiful design. Those three sites 
were a pleasure to visit and will deeply influence me as I go into my project starting now in January 2024. I have a deep desire to maintain the integrity of the Japanese style and the Japanese architectural tradition, but then also incorporate modern standards into it where it's comfortable, insulated, um, adheres to high levels of build science, which I'm studying, but then also incorporates new forms of architecture. I think Frank Lloyd Wright's use of space, changing ceiling heights and floor heights to make uh, structures feel comfortable and organic. I think that's something to try to mimic and also trying to apply the same standard of high quality craftsmanship that the Green and Green Brothers did. The use of wood, the use of joinery, and the use of light. I think that's something else to keep in mind and try to emulate. So I've shared some photos. This is my first time uh, sharing photos of the property here in Kobe that I am going to buy. If you're listening to this podcast on your Apple or Spotify or another podcast player, then you're not going to be able to see the photos in the description below. So you'll have to go to localjapan.substack.com or you can click the link in the description and you can subscribe to the email newsletter for free or optionally you could subscribe and pay either either the monthly or yearly membership which will go to support me and the work that I'm doing uh, in reading different books about Japanese architecture and design and history or um, doing interviews with leaders in this in this community and in this network in any case if you go there to Substack you'll see the photos um, I've just posted two this month I will certainly post more as time goes by um, in the months to come but this is what I'm just doing to start um, because I haven't started the renovation process yet I've just started to acquire the property and then I'm starting to clean out all the small articles that the previous owners have left there so in today's podcast what I will be doing is reading and reviewing the book The Art of Japanese Architecture written by David and Michiko Young who are a married couple who wrote this book together. They also photographed the book together, uh, which is pretty impressive. And this is actually one of the, my favorite books I have read this year. What makes this book especially interesting for me is that now that I've got this Japanese property, I'm able to learn about why it looks the way it looks and where it came from. The This book does an excellent job of explaining the history of japan through its architecture so the book goes from pre-buddhist culture into influences from korea and japan uh sorry korea and china and then into japan developing its unique cultural identity going into its samurai culture the way of the warrior and going into the centralized shogun era in the Edo period, and then going into the transition from Edo into Meiji, where it starts to modernize, industrialize, and westernize, and then into the post-war period 
which uh, we see mostly today with its modern architecture. The book goes through this progression, and it doesn't describe just architecture, but it describes the people and the cultures behind why these transitions took place and why these buildings look the way they look. So it was a fascinating read, and I loved that I was able to apply it to my own property to see where all the little details came from, like why there's a dirt floor and why there's different types of buildings. And so it was, it was really, really great. And um, we'll get into it today. I hope you enjoy. And I highly recommend you get this book. The photographs are unbelievable. It's really well written, very accessible. And if you click the link in the description, you'll also be supporting the podcast. So let's get started. Buddhism, with its sophisticated doctrines and universal appeal, was a radical departure from the relatively simple nature worship of Shinto. Its architecture was radically different as well. First, Chinese Buddhist architecture was based upon cosmological principles that required a strict, usually symmetrical, layout of the temple compound, surrounded by a wall and entered through a formal gateway. In contrast, early Shinto shrines attempted to fit into nature. Secondly, early Buddhist temples were complex and highly ornamental. Buildings were often constructed on a raised earthen podium. Foundation stones, partially buried in the stone-faced, packed earth floors, provided a base for large pillars that held up a massive tiled roof with a complex system of brackets to support the extensive overhang. Posts were colored vermilion, and the spaces between the posts were filled with white plaster walls. The interior was lavishly decorated and often included a magnificent altar. In contrast, early Shinto shrines were quite simple in basic design. The roof, while large, was covered with thatch or bark and thus was not heavy enough to require a complex support system. Posts were often planted directly in the earth, and the wood was left in its natural state. Interiors were equally austere. Over time, imported and indigenous styles of religious architecture influenced each other, with the result that many Shinto shrines assumed more elaborate forms and brighter colors, while many Buddhist temples evolved in the direction of greater simplicity and made a conscious attempt to fit into the natural surroundings. And right there is an excerpt of the book, The Art of Japanese Architecture by David and Michiko Young. And it's an excerpt that I think perfectly illustrates the strength of this book, which is to explain design choices made by the Japanese people over its over their long history, but having those choices attached to their culture and to different historical changes and influences that they went through. This book is really worth diving into chronologically because it does provide that progression of history, as I mentioned. The first chapter of this book, however, is an overview, and it discusses some basic principles of Japanese architecture, and I'll list them very briefly here. The first one is the, the use of natural materials and setting. They write here that traditional Japanese architecture is characterized by a preference for natural materials in particular wood. Since wood can breathe, it is suitable for the Japanese climate, 
wood absorbs humidity in the wet months and releases moisture when the air is dry. With proper care and periodic repairs, traditional post and beam structures can last as long as a thousand years. Another basic principle is restraint and exuberance. It's a very interesting contrast. It says that there is another side of Japanese culture that is not well known. The appreciation for exuberant colors and complexity of form in contrast to the restrained tradition with its simplicity and asymmetry. This is exemplified by Chinese-style shrines and temples and the mausoleums at Nikko. Such buildings are characterized by a strong contrast between vermilion posts and white plastered walls, elaborate decorations, curved lines, symmetry, and the imposition of order upon nature. Both the restrained and exuberant traditions are favored at different times and places, depending upon the occasion. A good example of the contrast is, so as you mentioned, Nikko, I've been there, and the temples are incredibly ornate with gold and painted in blue and red and green, versus the more restrained, which you could say indigenous Japanese style, which would be really emblematic of Ise, Grand Shrine, which uses basic wood that's nicely shaven, but not painted at all. It's very austere and very simple looking. So those are some two very radically different styles that occupy Japan. The third one here is attention to detail. I think this is something that many people from abroad, when looking into Japan, they see this. Regardless of whether circumstances call for restraint or exuberance, Japanese architects, builders, artists, and craftspeople pay a great deal of attention to detail. Even when the overall effect of a building is simple, particularly when it is viewed from a distance, a close-up inspection of the building often reveals numerous details that add interest. There is a fourth point of the basic principles. It is indigenous and foreign influences. The authors write here, Japanese society has been inundated at various times by cultural influences from abroad. In early times, these influences came primarily from Korea and China. More recently, mostly from Europe and the United States. In both cases, the Japanese welcomed foreign influences and attempted to copy what were perceived to be superior cultures. A reaction eventually set in, with the result that foreign influences were assimilated and made part of the Japanese tradition. Rather than being overwhelmed by foreign cultures, the Japanese repeatedly have demonstrated a talent for creatively blending different influences into new styles that express basic Japanese values and aesthetic preferences. Okay, the next one is preserving the past. Considerable effort is expended upon preserving old buildings. This requires dealing with the advantages and disadvantages of wood, the most popular building material in traditional Japan. Wood is easy to work with, it can be fashioned into a variety of shapes, and it can be used to create structures that are earthquake-resistant. The main disadvantage of wood is that it rots and burns. And he go, they, the authors go into a couple of ways that the Japanese have dealt with these problems. They have regular renewal, which is something we'll talk about later in the book about Issei Shur Grand Shrine. They're always rebuilding it every few decades. Uh, preservation. There's restoration and there's reconstruction. So there's many different projects that we'll talk about in the book that preserve the past in these different methods. The last principle is about status and function. 
they write that for many centuries, Japan has been a hierarchical society with considerable emphasis upon status, authority, and power. Differences in architectural styles provide a material expression of these differences in rank. To some extent, the history of Japanese traditional architecture can be viewed in terms of the contrast between the architecture of the elite and the architecture of common people. The former is exemplified by palaces and villas, as well as the temples and shrines patronized by rulers. The latter can be seen in farmhouses and the shop dwellings of merchants. These elite and commoner traditions, however, are not immutable. They sometimes come together, as in the case of a wealthy farmer who includes a formal showing-style room associated with elite dwellings in his farmhouse. The first chapter of the book is about pre-Buddhist cultures, and I remember when I was an English teacher at the public school system here in Japan, I went looking through some history books of my students, and the history books had these different chapters in them for the different epochs of time in Japanese history. And so what I like about this chapter is it gives a brief overview of all these different periods. And so after you read this chapter, you'll have a fundamental understanding of Japanese ancient history. And it's something that I think all Japanese people know about. It's sort of like, uh, you know, Americans, like we know who the first president is of the United States. So the first is the Jomon period from 10,000 BC to 300 BC. And they write, about 12,000 years ago, when the ice age ended, the climate warmed and sea levels climbed, cutting Japan off from the mainland. A new culture was born in the rapidly spreading deciduous forests, and pottery came into use. These ceramic people are called Jomon, meaning rope marked, due to the practice of decorating their coil pottery by pressing a piece of rope into the damp surfaces of newly made vessels, some of which were utilitarian, while others had wildly exuberant shapes. The Jomon people continued the hunting and gathering way of life of their ancestors, supplemented by small-scale horticulture, including some grains. Recent evidence suggests that towards the end of the Jomon period, inhabitants in temperate regions of Japan may have experimented with wet rice agriculture on a small scale. The next period is called the Yayoi period from 300 BC to 300 AD. Around 300 BC or a little earlier, new people and cultural influences arrived from the Korean peninsula, bringing metallurgy, large-scale wet rice agriculture based on irrigation, and wheel-made pottery. Originally centered in northern Kyushu, the Yoyoi people initially appear to have fought the indigenous Jomo people, but eventually mingled and interbred with them. This mixture provided the basis for the present-day Japanese people and culture. Many of the distinctive traits of Japanese culture date from these people of Wa, as they were called in early Chinese historical records. I know this, uh, the Chinese kanji for Japan uh, was Wa, and um, so Wa became associated with Japan. So that's why we have washitsu, which means Japanese room, or washoku, which is Japanese food. So that's an interesting little tidbit of the language. Some scholars believe that the Ainu, currently found only in Hokkaido and Sakhalin, may be descendants of a northern branch of the Jomon people that escaped physical and cultural blending with the Yayoi people. The origins of the Ainu, however, are controversial. Yeah, I think I, I love this kind of discussion because it's so interesting, especially um, after having conversations with Japanese people about the population. Yeah, I've heard things like, 
yeah, people from southern Japan and northern Japan are like phenotypically a little bit different. I don't, I don't know. I forget which ones are like stereotypically taller, but yeah, people from either the north or south are typically taller than the others, and they also have different face shapes. So it, it's, I mean, it's very nuanced, of course, but it's really interesting to think about, you know, the movement of people from ten thousand years ago, and just to still feel that reverberation of that history today. Next is the tomb mound period, which is from three hundred to seven ten A.D. By 300 AD, one or more of the Yayoi Uji, which means clan, uh, appears to have gained some preeminence over the other clans, giving rise to a succession of imperial dynasties that culminated in the Yamato state of the mid-6th century. The Yamato state, based in the area around the current cities of Nara, Kyoto, and Osaka, also known as the Kinki area, controlled a large area stretching from Kyushu in the west to the Kanto area in the east. The present imperial family of Japan, said to be the longest-lived royal dynasty in the world, is to believe to be descended from the ruling family of the Yamato state. The Two Mound Period, which derives its name from the common practice of burying royalty and high-ranking clan officials in stum tombs covered with large earthen mounds, lasted from around 300, or a little earlier, until 710. It thus overlaps with the coming of Buddhism in the middle of the 6th century. Buddhism, which was brought from China and Korea, introduced the advanced civilization of the continent, thereby bringing the prehistoric era to an end. Two mounds, however, continued to be built for another 200 years or so. And what I think, and what I really recommend you do at some point, is to just um, go onto Google Maps, onto the satellite imagery, and go to Osaka. And if you zoom in on Osaka, especially uh, a little bit south of the city, between central Osaka and the Kansai International Airport, there are these mounds that you can see from the satellite that they look like keys, almost, like keyholes. Uh, but they're these gigantic mounds, uh, these, these gigantic tombs that have remained untouched this whole time for this, uh, I don't know, 700 plus or 1,700 plus years. So it's pretty amazing. And here is when we start to go into the pit-dwelling architecture of the early people. So there are some reconstructed Jomon and Yayoi settlements across Japan where people can go um, to these national historic remains. Oftentimes they're considered important historical property. And you can visit these ancient structures that, I mean, honestly have a lot of resemblance to the thatched houses that still exist across modern Japan today. Here's an interesting section I, I, I liked. Uh, this is describing um, Sanai Maruyama, which is one of the archaeological sites that has been reconstructed. They say here that the findings at Sanai Maruyama have forced scholars to change their ideas about Jomon communities. Contrary to earlier beliefs that Jomon people had a primitive lifestyle based upon hunting wild animals, the residents of, San Ma of Sanai Maruyama settled in one place for an extended period of time, cultivated some food such as chestnuts, imported goods by boat from different parts of Japan, buried their dead, and lived at peace with their neighbors. So far, Reconstruction has been completed on one large 
and five small pit dwellings, three raised floor structures, and one large structure consisting of posts sunk in the ground, perhaps used as a lookout, which may have had a roof. A committee of experts from the fields of architecture, archaeology, and ethnology are continuing research on how to proceed with reconstruction. And in this chapter, they go through a bunch of different other sites. They write here, One of the most interesting findings is that there is considerable continuity between Jomon and Yayoi architecture. For example, it was long assumed that elevated storehouses began in the Yayoi period. It is now known that elevated Yayoi storehouses, which later developed into shrines and palaces, were a continuation of an earlier Jomon tradition. In the next part of the book, the authors provide little case studies of some pre-Buddhist structures, and I'll go through each of them, um, and I'll just kind of highlight what I found important. Uh, the first one are the Grand Shrines at Ise. And if you get to go visit someday, uh, this will give you some really nice background information. So as you're taking your tour through the place, you'll understand the gravity of the location because it is quite spectacular. They write, the architectural significance of the Issei shrines is that they are an early example of some of the basic principles of architecture, now considered to be typically Japanese, such as using thatch for roofing and exposed unpainted wood for beams and walls, raising the structure on wooden posts, and adapting a building to the natural environment. Of the ancient shrines in Japan, Issei Jingu is the most important. And they discuss the history of Issei Jingu and why it is so important and how it has such direct connections with the emperor. And one reason why I really like that section quickly is just because it kind of helps me understand the pro property that I've acquired. It has the same exact basic principles, right? Thatched roofing, exposed unpainted wood, uh, it's, on, it's on a pier and beam, you know, stilts, and uh, kind of built into the natural environment. So it's amazing to see that influence existing still today. But then also, what else is really cool about Issei is when you visit, you're seeing something that's pretty much stayed the same visually for, and structurally for, thousands of years. So you're, it really, it's like a, going to the shrine is like going to a time capsule. Uh, I think what's most interesting for a lot of people is the rebuilding program. So I'll, write, I'll just read that here. The shrines are rebuilt every 20 years, a policy begun by the Emperor Temmu in 685, over a century after the formal introduction of Buddhism and the invasion of Chinese culture. It was probably to guard against such a growing influence that the rebuilding program was instituted. While many other shrines were rapidly adopting Chinese characteristics, such as curved roofs and painted wood, the straight-line Shimmei style and the use of natural materials was maintained at Ise. Some features, however, such as the metal fittings, the north-south orientation of the buildings, and the design of the gates appear to be due to continental influence. The rebuilding program requires a massive expenditure of resources, time, and money, since it involves replacing 65 structures and approximately 16,000 artifacts that fill them. This requires a small army of carpenters, thatchers, sculptors, metalworkers, cloth makers, and other craftspeople. The rebuilding program commences 12 years after the completion of the preceding program and takes 8 years to complete. It is accompanied by 32 major rituals, beginning with cutting nearly 14,000 hinoki, Japanese cypress or white cedar, 
trees from an imperial forest preserve in the Kiso Mountains of Nagano Prefecture. The trees are floated down the river to a site on the Isejingu grounds where priest carpenters employ ancient tools and rituals to begin fashioning timbers for the new building. Thatching the new shrines requires about 25,000 bundles of mountain reeds, also called kaya. Continuing later, they say that the newly constructed buildings are supposed to be exact copies of the old shrines. After the new shrines have been authenticated by the priests, the old shrines are torn down and their materials are given to tributary shrines throughout Japan. This method ensures a faithful transmission of the old style. Although there have been several lapses in this rebuilding program, the shrines at Isejingu were rebuilt for the 61st time in 1993. The second case study that they offer for pre-Buddhist structures are Ainu buildings, and they introduced the Ainu here. Until recently, the Ainu, the indigenous people of northern Japan, lived in small seasonal settlements, kotan, located in food-gathering areas. For example, in spring, they lived along the seashore where they collected fish and seaweed. In summer, they lived in the mountains where they hunted animals and collected wild vegetables and berries. And in winter, they lived in valleys protected from wind and snow. And they explained the traditional dwellings of the Ainu. The simplest type of dwelling was a kashi. It consisted of a tripod whose sides were covered with branches and woven mats. It was large enough to provide shelter from the rain for a family of four or five. When more room was needed, a beam was placed between two sets of tripods and the sides enclosed to create a kucha, which housed up to ten people. A chise, a larger house with a roof set on walls, allowed enough space to stand up, make a fire, and do other kinds of indoor work. Upon entering a chise from the semu, which is the entrance or storage area, one found a large room with small windows and an earth floor, in the middle of which was a square fire pit with mats on both sides. Oh my god, it is snowing outside. Oh man. That's awesome. It's first snow I've seen since being back. I didn't see any in December, so this is cool. Would you look at that? Um, this next section is pretty interesting. It's not about Ainu building per se. It's more about their culture. But I think it's, we'll see how it kind of ties back in. Because Japan has a unique relationship, let's say, with uh, Ainu. So it says here, Traditional Ainu religion was organized around a cult in which a bear cub was captured and raised by an Ainu woman. In recent times, the cub was raised in a cage until grown, when it was ritually killed and eaten in the Iomante ceremony. The skull was adorned, worshipped, and paraded through the village in a rite designed to free the spirit of the bear and to maintain good relations with the spirit world. The traditional way of life of the Ainu continued until around the end of the Edo period. In 1899, the government enacted the Hokkaido Ainu Preservation Law, encouraging the Ainu to live in permanent villages and to cultivate the land. However, there was little land available, as Japanese had been immigrating to Hokkaido since the 15th century. Laws prohibiting traditional customs and food-gathering practices led to the decline of traditional culture and language, as well as to an overall lower standard of living. 
In the 20th century, the Hokkaido prefectural government established housing programs for the Ainu, but the houses were so small and poorly built that the Ainu preferred to live in traditional style houses next to the government buildings. In 1997, the Diet passed a new law advocating research on Ainu culture and supporting the preservation of Ainu language, customs, and traditions. It remains to be seen if this law will improve the situation of the Ainu. Ainu leaders are attempting to revitalize traditional culture by teaching the Ainu language and traditional customs to young people. There are only a few elders, however, who possess this kind of knowledge, so the task is daunting and the outcome is uncertain. There are around 24 reconstructed chise in Hokkaido and three more in other areas. However, none are actually used as living quarters at present. The way of life of contemporary Ainu is not that much different from that of the larger population, into which they have, for the most part, been assimilated. The end of the Edo period was really not that long ago. It was the mid-1800s when the Edo period ended and Japan entered its modernization period of the Meiji Restoration. So it's pretty incredible to think that this Ainu culture thrived, you know, what is that, less than uh, 200 years ago? And to think that they had this seasonal lifestyle where they would move from place to place depending on the seasons and uh, also how that more nomadic system kind of came to an end when that land started to be converted into into more fixed uh, dwellings for uh, mainland Japanese people moving up to Hokkaido. So the next part of the story begins with the introduction of Buddhism into Japan in the 6th century. And this is called the Asuka period from 538 to 645. The traditional date for the introduction of Buddhism to Japan is 538, although the date 552 is often used as well. The period between the arrival of Buddhism and the Taika reform of 645 is known as the Asuka period. The Asuka period takes its name from the Asuka area near Nara, the site of the first real capital. So before Kyoto, which is many people know as the old capital, it was, it was Nara. During the Osaka period, Japan was thoroughly transformed as it came under the influence of continental civilization. So Buddhism was used as a political tool um, by different clans, but the major change happened here. Prince Shotoku, who was appointed regent by the Empress Suiko in 593, was more interested in the religious and philosophical aspects of Buddhism than in its use as a political tool. He became a devout follower and actively promoted the new religion. Under his patronage, great numbers of Korean craftspeople came to Japan to build Buddhist temples and furnish them with sculpture, paintings, and the decorative arts. Okay, I briefly mentioned the Taika reform of 645, so the authors will now explain what that is. So he says, the Taika reform of 645 created a central government with a legislative structure based upon the model of Tang China. Official interchange with China was established for the first time and envoys were exchanged between the two courts. Buddhist architecture, arts, and crafts spread from the capital to the provinces and literature flourished as evidence of the publication of a great collection of 4,400 poems, the Manyoshu. This period is called the Hakuho period from 645 to 710. The next period is from 710 to 794, called the Nara period. And I'm just doing this to give you a crash course in the different 
epochs of Japanese history, so you can become a well-versed amateur of Japanese history by the end of the podcast. Okay, so in the Nara period, they say that despite several temporary moves back and forth between um, different capitals, this city called Heijokyo remained the capital for 74 years. With official support, the major Buddhist denominations built headquarters in Heijokyo, such as Yakushiji and Kofukuji. Emperor Shomu, a vigorous supporter of Buddhism, decreed that temples and nunneries be erected in each province and that Todaiji be built in Heijokyo as the head cathedral of this national network. Todaiji housed a great bronze Buddha, Daibutsu, that still exists today. In 752, dignitaries from as far away as Persia gathered for the eye-opening ceremony during which the eyes were painted in by an eminent Indian priest. So there's a couple things I want to explain here. First is Yakushiji. That name should be familiar to you because we learned about the reconstruction of Yakushiji in the podcast that I did about the book, The Genius of Japanese Carpentry, The Secrets of an Ancient Craft by Asby Brown. Uh, the second one is that uh, it's just so incredible that dignitaries from as far away of Persia came to Japan for the creating creation of Daibutsu, which you can see today, which is in Nara. And uh, it is, it's unbelievable how large that thing is. And and the last thing is just that uh, Heijokyo is um, modern in Nara. And that's just an old name for the city. The last section that I want to read is about residential architecture. The last section I want to read is here about residential architecture because it explains so well so much of the the buildings that you still see today in Japan and the building that I have now. It says, The 6th century through the 8th century are best known for the introduction of Buddhism and the construction of capitals in the Chinese style, as described above. There were, however, indigenous developments primarily in the area of residential architecture. Average houses were probably post and beam structures with either thatch or board roofs, the latter weighed down with stones. Starting in the Asuka period, Palaces, temples, and aristocratic dwellings were built at the expense of the farmers who paid heavy taxes and provided forced labor. Farmhouses grew progressively smaller as the condition of farmers worsened. At the same time, however, technology improved to the point that it was possible to eliminate interior posts that supported the roofs of pit houses and rely solely on pillars that ex in the exterior walls. Eventually, the pit was eliminated altogether in favor of rectangular ground-level dwellings with two interior rooms, a room with an earthen floor and fire pit for cooking, and a room whose earthen floor was covered with straw and mats for eating and sleeping. This basic plan can still be seen in some traditional farmhouses, known as Minka. And I love being able to see that influence in my house now. The The main house is split up essentially in half. One half is ground level, and that's where the kitchen would have been. And there is an earthen floor. And then the other half is elevated above, which is which are rooms for various activities. Um, there's also bedrooms. And those are covered in, of course, tatami. But here, they write here that it was covered with straw and mats for eating and sleeping. So the materials are a little bit different, but the same human function exists back then and still today. There are a few chapters where they discuss some specific Buddhist temples, um, like the temples of Nara, but I wanted to skip over to post-Buddhist Shinto shrines. So the first thing that I wanted to mention is this thing called a Kamidana, 
which is a Shinto shelf that you put in your house. And it's also, we, there's a Kamidana in the house, in my house now here in Kobe. Um, so that's definitely something worth, uh, it's priceless, worth preserving and, and uh, creating a space for that. Uh, but it says here, eventually Shinto beliefs and practices became widely established among the common people and shrines were built in every village and town to enshrine a protected deity for the residents. Even individual houses had household shrines, a main Shinto shelf, kamidana, for holding ritual objects, and special shrines for particular parts of the house, such as a shrine for the god of the hearth and a shrine for the god of the kitchen. Because Shinto was so closely associated with the surroundings and activities of everyday life, it came to play an important role in the Japanese psyche, with its tendency to give precedence to the immediate direct experience of nature over the lofty philosophical and ethical precepts of Buddhism. Nevertheless, in many cases, Shinto and Buddhist beliefs and practices were amalgamated into a syncretic shrine temple, some of which can still be seen today. With the growth of state Shinto, many sought to elevate Shintoism over Buddhism, with the consequence that after the Meiji Restoration of 1868, shrines and temples were separated. All shrines were required to join a national association with Issei Shrine as the head. This new organization, dedicated to the glory of the emperor and the Japanese state, built many new shrines, known as Jingu, rather than the normal Jinja, in the Shimmei style. These shrines, such as the Meiji Shrine in Tokyo and Kashihara Jingu in Nara Prefecture, were built on a grand scale. After World War II, state Shinto was abolished. Now we enter an era in which the Japanese begin developing a cultural identity. And this is why I love the book, because it really tells a nice narrative through architecture. The Heian period began when the capital was moved from Heijokyo, modern-day Nara, to Heiankyo, present-day Kyoto, partly to escape the influence of powerful Buddhist temples in the former capital. The culture of Tang China continued to dominate for a time, but Japan eventually reduced contact with the continent and assimilated what it had learned to produce a distinctive culture of its own. The last half of the Heian period is called the Fujiwara Epoch, a time when Japanese culturally gradually developed its own distinctive identity. This was facilitated by several factors, such as the suspension of official exchanges with China in the latter part of the 9th century, Another factor was that public lands, which had been taken by the Yamato court in its bid to establish control over competing clans, increasingly fell into the hands of tax-free temples and their aristocracy. As taxes dried up, government bureaucracy ceased functioning and the court became isolated from the affairs of the country. Members of the court spent their time in the pursuit of art, poetry, and romance. So during the Heian period, a new style of building was established called Shinden. So I think this is one of the most important concepts to get from the book because Shinden is everywhere now in Japan. They explain here, Heian period Shinden style mansions featured a central hall. So the central hall is called the Shinden, connected to subsidiary buildings by long covered corridors. The entire walled complex, with its various courtyards, was arranged around a larger garden consisting of a lake with an island reached by small bridges. Although none of these early mansions remain, the style influenced later palaces and temples, as well as residential architecture. 
one more detail here is a feature of the Shinden style that had a major influence upon subsequent architecture was the large open central space surrounded by peripheral sections. This, plus the use of movable room dividers rather than permanent interior walls, provided considerable flexibility in that interior space could be divided in different ways depending on the occasion. They dedicated an entire section of the book to um, esoteric Buddhism, which was a very important import from China through Japanese monks who studied in China and came back to Japan. And this happened during the Heian period. The, the most important of the monks is this man named Kukai, who established Mount Koya, which is a village up in the mountains of Wakayama and the headquarters of esoteric Buddhism today. When Kukai returned from China, he established dual headquarters at Toji Temple in Kyoto and at Kongobuji Temple on Mount Koya. Kukai called the new denomination Shingon, meaning true word. Shingon, known as mystical Buddhism because its esoteric doctrines cannot be explained in words, attaches great importance to the ritual incantation of mantras, formula, that symbolically represent the nature and structure of the universe. Today, the original 1,000 or so temples at the headquarters on Mount Koya have been reduced to 123, and very little of the original complex remains. So this next section is about a very specific Buddhist architectural detail that arose in the Heian era. And I'd never heard about this before, so this was totally new for me and very interesting. So they write here, um, according to an ancient Buddhist prophecy, the world would enter into Mappo, a dark period, beginning in 1052, during which it would be impossible to attain enlightenment by good works, meditation, and ceremonies. The only way to salvation would be through personal faith in Amida Buddha. By the late Heian period, paradise halls dedicated to Amida Buddha were being built all over Japan. Mappo means the latter end of the law or of the Dharma, a time beginning 1,500 years after the death of the historical Buddha, when his teachings would lose its power and society would become degenerate. The Heian period appeared to fit the prophecy. Degeneracy seemed to be everywhere, extending even to Buddhist monasteries, where monks often appeared to be more interested in wealth, power, and pleasure than in spiritual values. The monk Kuya traveled around Japan, preaching about the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell and the monk Genshin expounded upon the worship of Amida Buddha, the Buddha of boundless light, who would ensure the rebirth in Jodo, the pure land, of anyone who called upon his name in an act of sincere faith. Basically, this involves the practice of Nembutsu, repeating the name of Amida Buddha in the formula Namu Amida Butsu, meaning homage to Amida Buddha. So there's a lot of Japanese words in that sentence, so it might be kind of complicated. Uh, but essentially, the idea in this uh, in this branch of Buddhism, it's called Pure Land Buddhism, where if you repeat the name of the Buddha as a sort of chant in an act of sincere faith, then you'll be able to be reborn into the into the Pure Land. The way that I've come to understand this, and the way that I describe it, is that. It's, to me, it's quite similar to the break that happens between Catholicism and Protestantism in the Christian faith. 
where Catholicism is a bit esoteric. There's a lot of use of different rituals and um, and ceremonies and the use of different icons in the church, like really ornate uh, churches, um, the use of paintings and statues. Whereas Protestantism is much more simple, where churches tend not to be so, so ornate and they the emphasis is less on ritual and it's more on building a sincere relationship with with Jesus. And so in the same way, I, I kind of see this as esoteric Buddhism brought by Kukai to be one that's really caught up in ornate art, the painting of mandalas, the very ornate architecture. Like one that comes to mind is that you can uh, take some stairs uh, to go underneath the temple where it's pitch black and you have to just feel your way through the tunnel to come out the other side to be reborn. And so, you know, that's an exact, that's an example of a Shingon ritual. That's, that's a bit ornate and extra. Whereas, um, Jodo Shinshu Buddhism or this pure land Buddhism is a, is more simple and less ornate and relies on practicing sincere faith in the Buddha. I'm not sure if we'll get to this in the book, but in the latter part of Japanese history, there was a lot of rivalry between between Shingon and Jodo Shinshu. And I mean, I think even wars broke out between different priests. And so not too, not too dissimilar from the wars of Europe in the fractions of Catholicism and Protestantism. Okay, so they continue here that this emphasis on grace rather than self-effort, set the stage for the development in later periods of various denominations of Pure Land Buddhism, the first of which was Jodo Shinshu, founded by Honen Shonin. The headquarters of Jodo Shinshu is Chionin Temple in Kyoto, founded in 1234. Honen's chief disciple was Shinran Shonin, founder of Jodo Shinshu. The teachings of Kuya and Genshin caught on, and court nobles began to build private paradise halls on their estates, situated on a garden and pond, in the manner of Shinden-style mansions. The goal was to create visions of the Pure Land, the western paradise on earth. These teachings spread to rural areas where powerful families built Amida halls like those in Kyoto. They give an example of one of these in Kyoto. Uh, it's called Joruriji Temple. I think I'll put links to these different temples so that you can see it for yourself in the description. You can read about it, and then hopefully you can you can actually visit it in person someday. Okay, so they just explain how this looks like in design. So the long pagoda houses nine statues of Amida, each representing one of the nine stages of Nirvana. There is a small island in the middle of the pond that represents the present world, halfway between the eastern and western paradises. This combination of symbolism and natural beauty evokes a mystical realm that can transport the believer into an experience of heaven on earth. Building paradise halls with nine Amida Buddhas was common in the latter part of the Heian period, but Joruriji is the only one of its type left. Toward the end of the Heian period, a series of wars between the Taeda and Minamoto clans ultimately resulted in victory for the Minamoto. Determined to escape the influence of the Afet culture of Kyoto, the Minamoto established a military shogunate in Kamakura and laid the basis for a feudal society governed by the principles of Bushido, the way of the warrior. 
just quickly, I had to look up what effet meant. And um, effet means no longer effective. So the effet culture of Kyoto, meaning Kyoto was losing its influence and power. And so the Minamoto clan set up a shogun in Kamakura. So the Kamakura period began in 1185, ending in 1333. And it was founded by Minamoto Yoritomo, in which the samurai, also known as Bushi, became the ruling class. And it was a very hierarchical system in the society in which samurai owned loyalty to their clan lords, also known as daimyo. And the daimyo were under the control of the shogun, the supreme military ruler. The shogun received his appointment from the emperor, who retained symbolic power, and this military system of government overall was known as the pakufu. We talked about how Japan cut off a lot of its ties with continental civilization in Korea and China, but in this period, um, some Chinese influence returned, and specifically Zen Buddhism. So they write here that Zen Buddhism influenced the architecture of the period. It introduced new principles of temple construction from China and had an impact upon the development of samurai houses. Its crowning architectural achievement, however, was the creation of the tea house, in which simplicity, naturalness, and understatement expressed in terms such as wabi and sabi emphasize the beauty of the tea ceremony. So wabi-sabi have become, I think, pretty popular these days, meaning imperfection or asymmetry or just the beauty of of the natural. So this is pretty cool. In the um, so this is actually in the Muromachi period. So this is 1333 to 1573. So a little bit after the Kamakura shogunate. They say that Zen Buddhism appealed to the warrior class because of its emphasis upon intuitive awareness and aesthetic expression, rather than upon esoteric beliefs and practices. Zen stimulated or lent its support to numerous art forms such as suiboku, black ink painting, calligraphy, flower arranging, the tea ceremony, landscape gardens, no drama, and the martial arts. Mastering an art form was perceived as a way to discipline the mind and body, thus resulting in practical benefits useful to a warrior. So earlier in the book we learned about the Shinden style of the Heian period, and in this period, the Muromachi period, there is a new style that gets developed called Shoin. Early modern residential architecture has its roots in the Shoin style of the Muromachi period, which gradually developed out of the Shinden style of Heian period mansions. Shoin rooms, used as studies in the living quarters of monasteries or for entertaining guests in the villas of shoguns, included features such as recessed alcove, called tokonoma, I think some of you probably know that word. Built-in desks, staggered shelves, and decorative doors. They write here, Shoin-style architecture eventually was adopted by people of wealth and power from all walks of life. In addition to being used in palaces and important temples, Shoin-style rooms or buildings were incorporated into the villas of high-ranking samurai families, and even the homes of wealthy farmers. The Shoin style reached its peak in the early part of the Edo period, Showing style rooms and buildings are still built today, primarily by temples attempting to regain past glory. 
the primary reason for the persistence and spread of the showin style is that it reached a level of perfection in terms of tasteful elegance that has never been surpassed in Japanese architecture. The showin style is particularly important because of its influence on early modern residential architecture, which includes features such as tatami mats, flexible interiors divided by sliding paper doors, recessed alcoves for art objects, tokonoma, and exterior sliding doors covered with translucent white paper, shoji. The authors dedicate a full chapter to castles and castle culture, and naturally they They spread during the decentralized era of feudalism. Uh, specifically, they say that it reached its height in the Momoyama period from 1573 to 1600. In the following Edo period, um, from 1600 to 1868, castles were strictly regulated. And during the Meiji period, the, reconstru- the, the modernization period from 1868 to 1912, many were destroyed. More were lost. To neglect and World War II. Today, only 12 original castles survive. So, we'll get into why all this happened.、Uh, first, I found this really interesting. So, it says here the ori- originally the wood of Japanese castles was exposed, but later the walls were plastered and painted white. Although the plaster and the tile protected the, the,、uh, the multi story building, the castle, from incendiary missiles. They were otherwise rather fragile compared to European castles constructed of stone or brick. In many cases, the castle's primary function was to symbolize the power of the lord and to provide luxurious quarters for living and entertaining. Castles were decorated with screens painted by the most famous artists of the day and featured large tatami rooms, often constructed in the Shoin style. So it's pretty interesting, right? So it says here again the main defense was provided not by the Donjon itself, which is the multi story building,、uh, but by the moats, ponds, and walls that created a maze of corridors and courtyards through which attackers had to find their way. So that kind of goes to show why so few castles exist in Japan today and why the castles that do exist, a lot of them are reconstructions and they're not true originals. Whereas in Europe, a lot of them still exist because. The, they were much more pragmatic in terms of defense, whereas the Japanese ones were more intended to project a sense of power, but not necessarily used for defense itself. We'll get into so then they explain here、um, the Meiji Restoration of 1868 ushered in a fascination with things Western and a desire to destroy anything associated with Japan's feudal past.、Um, The samurai class was abolished, as were many aspects of samurai culture, including castles. Matsumoto Castle was sold for a pittance to be demolished for its metal parts. Fortunately, however, influential local families raised enough money to buy back and repair the castle. The restored edifice was designated a historic site in 1930 and a national treasure in 1936. Today, it is the main tourist attraction for the city of Matsumoto and the surrounding area. The last section of the chapter jumped the gun a bit. We talked about the Meiji Restoration,、uh, but the next step in the story is actually the Edo period, centralized feudalism.、Uh, so, Tokugawa Ieyasu completed the unification of Japan, established a system of centralized feudalism, and moved his military capital to Edo, later renamed Tokyo, to begin 250 years of relative peace and isolation. 
Samurai were at the top of the social hierarchy, but merchants eventually gained control of the wealth, and for the first time in Japanese history, common people became the leaders of the new cultural developments. You know, it was interesting to learn earlier about how castle culture really decreased during this period because, of course, Tokugawa wanted to ensure that his reign was supreme and so discouraged other castles from being built to discourage potential uprisings and splits in the unification of Japan. So this period saw a, a boom for, for the common people. In addition to castles, samurai houses, and administrative buildings, um, the regional metropolitan centers of the country produced a new townspeople culture dominated by businessmen houses, shops, and factories. A characteristic feature of regional towns was the proliferation of kuda, storehouses, separate fireproof buildings for protecting the treasures of the moneyed class who spent their free time in the pursuit of pleasure. What I found interesting about that section is that the house that I got here in Kobe also has a kuda, which is, I think it's pretty common nowadays to see them everywhere in, in a lot of minka in the countryside. But it's so cool to, to see again, like, where does, it, where does that come from? Eventually, many rural residents moved into occupations other than farming, either on a part-time or full-time basis. This includes the manufacture or sale of items such as fertilizer, sake, miso, soy sauce, vegetables, flour, and firewood. Partly as a result of diversification and increased income, farmhouses became larger than in previous periods and construction techniques became more sophisticated. The most common arrangement was to have a large living area with a sunken fireplace in the front of the house and sleeping and kitchen areas in the rear. Some farmers became wealthy enough to build themselves luxurious homes that incorporated showing-style features favored by the upper classes in towns and cities. There was, of course, considerable variation in building styles depending upon the area of the country. So at this time, um, current-day Tokyo was once called Edo, and it was the feudal capital. Tokugawa Ieyasu had a castle there, but it was destroyed in a fire, actually, in 1657. And it's kind of crazy. It says here that it left 60% of Edo, including Edo Castle, in ashes, and around 100,000 people dead. So that's pretty insane. It was partially rebuilt, but you can only see the remains now, or the ruins now, uh, today in Tokyo. And... It said here also that uh, despite measures taken to prevent fire, uh, more than 90 serious fires and the great earthquake of 1923 repeatedly destroyed the capital. This tragic loss was repeated in World War II when firebombing reduced the city to rubble. As a result, very little of the original architecture from the Edo period remains. And I think that's really an, an important historical fact to, to take into account because you listen to me on on the podcast always trashing Tokyo for how how ugly it looks because it's full of large skyscrapers and there's no sense of regional um, traditional Japanese cultural style but um, you know there's also a historical component to, to why it looks the way it does um, not just World War II although that is a huge part of it but also just fire and earthquakes that re repeatedly destroyed the place in the next few chapters of the book they dedicate sections to different cities that they find architecturally important. Uh, I'm not going to go through each one in detail, but I'll just read the most interesting things I found per case. 
and hopefully can give you the incentive to research more about it and then visit it in person. And you can really get a sense of, of the place. So the first one is Takayama, which I've been to. Gorgeous, gorgeous um, old center. And this is really interesting. It says that in the Nara period, the villages of Hida, present-day Gifu Prefecture, were unable to pay taxes because of poor rice yields. In place of taxes, each village was required to send 10 artisans to Nara to help construct the new capital. As a result, Hida carpenters became renowned for their skill. Their handiwork is preserved in the old provincial town of Takayama, a bustling city that combines the old and the new. Takayama has had the foresight to preserve a large area of traditional architecture known as the Sanmachi District, which attracts millions of visitors each year who come to see its traditional houses, shops, sake breweries, and temples. My brother is apprenticing for a Japanese architect back in Los Angeles, and that architect is from Gifu. So um, it seems that that prefecture, because of its history that we just, just, that we just learned, um, you know, that reverberates today, and, you know, it still produces highly skilled um, artisans. Pretty awesome. The next one is Kanazawa, which is a castle town. It says that it was spared saturated bombing in World War II. Kanazawa has more historically important architecture than most cities, as well as one of Japan's three most important gardens called Ken Rokuen. And this was interesting. So as a castle town, it's supposed to have at least one temple quarter situated to provide the first line of defense against invasion. And so Kanazawa, the city, has two different areas. It has the Teramachi area with 70 temples situated on the Saigawa River on the west side of the city. And then the other area is called Utatsuyama with 50 temples situated on the Asanogawa River on the east side of the city. Um, and those two lines of temples provided defense. The next chapter is called Ogimachi, a farm village which is um, a part of a region known as Shirakawago, a pretty, another very famous tourism spot with the very, very tall Japanese farm had, uh, farmhouses. They are very steep thatched roofs, and it's known as gasho style. Um, in Japanese, gasho means hands folded in prayer, and so the roofs are supposed to look as if they are hands in gasho. And I wanted to read this beautiful section about the construction and replacing of the roof. It says, when properly cared for, thatched roofs last around 100 years. Many of the houses are at least 250 years old. Some have been owned by the same families for many generations. Replacing a roof is a community effort carried out by a labor sharing system called Yui. Yui provides labor not only for repairing houses, especially roofs, but also for activities such as planting, harvesting, and clearing snow. It takes several months to collect and dry the grass for a new roof, tie it into bundles, and organize a workforce of several hundred people. When preparations are complete, it takes three days to remove the old thatch and about one day to replace any roof timbers that have decayed. Tie on the new bundles of grass and trim the thatch. At any one time, as many as 100 people may be working on the roof, with several times that number of people on the ground, tying grass bundles and engaged in support activities such as preparing food. No nails are needed. No nails are used in the process. The roof frame is tied together with rope, and the thatch bundles are attached to the frame with vines. Because no metal is used, the roofs are ecologically sound, especially since the old thatch is burned as fuel 
when the roof is redone. Uh, just a last thing here. Unfortunately, the cost of replacing a roof is becoming prohibitively expensive, up to half a million US dollars. Moreover, the pompous grass used for thatching is becoming difficult to find in sufficient quantities. As a result, some families can no longer continue the rethatching tradition and are being forced to replace or cover the thatch with tin. There's another chapter that's related um, about minka, about rural houses, which we have come to know quite intimately on the podcast. Did another podcast uh, quite a while ago on minka by John Roderick, which is a wonderful book on his story. And his story is perfectly described in this paragraph here about farmhouse reconstruction. So in this chapter, they say, traditional Japanese farmhouses with their steep thatched roofs, exposed exposed pillars and beams, and sliding panels that can be removed to provide an intimate contact with nature, have romantic appeal for many people. Farmhouses that have been abandoned or neglected by their owners are being purchased by those who wish to return to their rural roots or who are searching for a more natural lifestyle. Sometimes these farmhouses are even purchased by foreigners who have developed a love for traditional Japanese houses, like myself. Okay, the next case study is called Kurashiki, which is a rice merchant town, and uh, another uh, just another place that I highly recommend you go. It's also just incredibly stunningly beautiful. The, the authors briefly mentioned that although the samurai were the ruling class of the Edo period, it was actually a lot of merchants who gained a lot of power because they controlled where capital went to. And they, in a hearing, Kurashiki, it was a collection depot for regional products, but also a place for for wholesale and retail for the selling of sake, indigo, and other products. And the city's name, Kura, means storehouse, which reflects this past emphasis upon mercantile activities. Um, Edo period structures in Kurashiki consisted primarily of thick-walled kura attached to businessmen houses that were also built in a matching kura style. Both kura and machia had whitewashed walls, some of which were decorated with square tiles in varying degrees of black and gray. Roofs were covered with black hongawara buki tiles. The tiling on the sides of the walls you can still see today. It says here that Kurashiki escaped bombing during the war, and as a result, it has been able to preserve many notable buildings from different historical periods, making it a living outdoor museum of past architectural styles. Every year, millions of tourists visit Kurashiki to stroll along its canals and view its fascinating buildings, many of which are remodeled storehouses. By this part of the book, we start to enter into architecture that is seen more commonly throughout Japan today. It's kind of entering into a more modern period. It's called here Sukiya-style villas and palaces. And they have, there's two cases I will discuss here. But to introduce, they say that the Sukiya style is an informal version of showing architecture. Whereas showing buildings aimed at formality through the use of ornately decorated walls, heavy squared timbers, and decorated ceilings, the Sukiya style, which borrowed many of its techniques from the tea house, emphasized the use of natural materials such as poles with the bark left on them to create a relaxed atmosphere. Another difference is that the roof eaves of showing style buildings have a slight upward curve in the tradition of shrines and temples, whereas Sukiya style buildings have a slight downward curve. 
they're quoting a German architect here named Bruno Taut, and they say that the influential German architect Bruno Taut proclaimed that the two high points of Japanese architecture are Ise Jingu and the Sukiya-style detached palace called Katsura Rikyu, which is in Kyoto. And you have to make a reservation to get in, but if you can go, it's also an incredible sight. When the aesthetic principles expressed at Ise were combined with the aesthetic principles developed in the way of tea, the result was a level of taste so refined and highly sophisticated that it represents one of the major contributions of Japanese culture to the world. So here we discuss Katsura Rikyu, the detached palace in Kyoto. So the buildings of Katsura Rikyu are raised on posts in the Ise shrine and palace tradition. The spaces under the buildings are enclosed with white plastered walls interspersed with bamboo laths. This raised style of architecture facilitates air circulation and enhances the view of the stroll garden, consisting of artificial hills, ponds, and streams on a property of some 56,000 square meters. That kind of reminds me of the Frank Lloyd Wright concept of buildings as organic structures that kind of come up from the landscape in which they're surrounding. The next site is called Yoshida Sanso. It's currently an exclusive inn in Kyoto. It was constructed in 1932 in the foothills of Kyoto's Mount Yoshida as a private residence for Higashi Fushimi Nomiya, uncle of the current Japanese emperor Akihito. Higashi Fushimi Nomiya lived at Yoshida Sanso while attending Kyoto University. So this next section here, it blew my mind. Okay. In the spirit of greater freedom promoted by the Sukiya style of architecture, the villa combines traditional Showian-style features, such as tatami mats, a recessed alcove, and staggered shelves, with modern touches inspired by the Art Deco movement, which was popular in Japan in the early Showa period. So to me, that's so awesome that uh, the Art Deco movement, which I think it was, I mean, it, it reached its height in the United States, with the Chrysler building and um, the Rockefeller Center and other buildings throughout like Los Angeles and but yeah the fact that it could it traveled to Japan and was infused into this Japanese architecture is so such a cool mixture of culture and they actually have a a picture I'll try to find one that I could share on Substack. It's a picture of a paneled door as at the main entrance of Yoshida Sanso. And it you can totally tell, like, oh my gosh, this is inspired by Art Deco. Uh, okay, it says here, The villa is constructed entirely of Hinoki Japanese cypress, the pieces of which are joined in a traditional manner without the use of nails. Each frontal roof tile and sliding door handle bears the design of the imperial chrysanthemum, a design element restricted to buildings associated with imperial patronage. Yoshida Sanso was designed by one of Japan's master builders, Nishioka Tsunekazu, who also supervised restoration work at some of Nara's most famous Buddhist temples, such as Horyuji and Yakushiji. And of course, we learned about that man, Nishioka Tsunekazu, in Asby Brown's book, at last, we arrive at the Meiji Restoration of 1868, which the authors define as the dividing line between traditional and modern Japan. 
Early modern Japan is the period between the Meiji Restoration and the end of World War II. And during this period, Western civilization had a significant influence upon public buildings, whereas architectural traditions associated with the daily life of the common people continued relatively unchanged. So I really enjoy this summary that they have here in the first part of the chapter because it really provides a very concise summary of the history of this era. So, the Meiji period. Dissatisfaction with the Tokugawa government, combined with the military pressure from the West, led to the Meiji Restoration of 1868, which abolished feudalism and returned power to the emperor. Following the defeat of the Tokugawa shogunate, Japan became a constitutional monarchy with a parliament. An ambitious program of modernization was fueled by the nationalistic ideology of state Shinto. The goal was to achieve economic and military modernization as quickly as possible to avoid colonization by the West. And just as a side note, the, the Japanese people, and in particular the Tokugawa shogunate, they realized quite quickly that due to their isolation for those 300 odd years, that they needed to change because the Tokugawa shogunate was not powerful enough. Young people were sent to Europe and the U.S. to learn about banking, rail, and road building, and to acquire the skills necessary for running a modern country. Model factories were established and subsidized, and many people in rural areas moved to the cities to work in the new factories. A mass program of indoctrination encouraged individuals of all ages and walks of life to sacrifice in interests of building a nation that could overcome nearly three centuries of isolation and compete with the West. Foreign advisors were brought to Japan, and Western culture swept the country. It became fashionable to wear Western-style clothing, eat Western food, and build Western-style buildings. The newly established parliament, the Diet, even debated introducing English as the official language and importing Western women to refresh the gene pool. When I read that, that totally, that shocked me. Those two things were pretty, pretty insane. Okay, instruction in traditional painting techniques was replaced in the schools by Western-style oil painting and watercolors. Many Buddhist monasteries were destroyed, and priceless Buddhist images were discarded or sold. We now move on to the influence of the West on architecture in this period. So this chapter specifically talks about public buildings that were, of course, run, operated, subsidized by the government, but then also... Um, private buildings later on. We'll learn about um, private residences and temples and shrines and inns and how those private buildings remained relatively unchanged. They stayed pretty loyal to the traditional Japanese style, but how public works was deeply influenced by the West. Okay, in an attempt to develop modern technology as rapidly as possible, the Meiji government hired experts, including engineers and architects from abroad. Following a disastrous fire in the Ginza Tsukiji area of Tokyo in 1872, the government hired Thomas James Waters, a British engineer, to rebuild the area, the first example of modern urban planning in Japan. By 1877, the main thoroughfare of the Ginza was lined with European style brick buildings. Another foreigner who had a major impact upon Japanese architecture was Josiah Condor, an Englishman who arrived in Japan in 1877 at the age of 25 to serve as professor of architecture at the Imperial College of Engineering and consultant to the Ministry of Public Works. 
Between 1878 and 1907, Kondor designed over 50 major buildings in Tokyo, including the Tokyo Imperial Museum in Ueno, the largest brick building in Japan. Although Japan soon began training its own architects and engineers, foreigners continued to come to Japan in subsequent periods. Two of the best known were the American architect Frank Lloyd Wright, who designed the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, which is a great decision, and is a gorgeous building, which was torn down though, which was a huge travesty. And then the second one, French architect Charles E. Jean Naret, better known as Le Corbusier, who designed the National Museum of Western Art in Tokyo, which was an awful decision and still stands and is a very ugly, typical building built by the tasteless Le Corbusier. The, the writers talked about educating of Japanese talent. So, you know, Japanese schools and programs, they started to graduate young Japanese students. They say here, they named two. Um, two students were Katayama Tokuma and Tatsuno Kingo. And they say here, this new breed of Japanese architects used stone in the most important buildings, such as the Akasaka Detached Palace, which was, which was designed as the residence for the crown prince by Katayama. Uh, less important buildings, such as Tokyo Station, designed by Tatsuno, were generally constructed of red brick with steel or timber frames. And the least important buildings were timber-framed weatherboard structures favored by government ministries because they were cheaper and easier to build than stone or brick. Uh, but what is interesting is the blended styles that began in the 1880s. So earlier we talked about the Imperial Museum designed by José Condor. Uh, it was destroyed in the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923, and there was a competition to design the replacement. Uh, in the, the, the jury chose Watanabe Hitoshi, Japanese architect, who um, used massive tiled roofs and Japanese decorative motifs added to heavy symmetrical Western-style facades. And they have a couple photos of different... Um, Blended style. So here, I, you can search these up on your own. The Buddhist Art Library of the Nara National Museum. The former Kaichi School, which is uh, one of the oldest public schools in Japan. And Tokyo Station. And uh, all those three are really cool examples of this blended Japanese Western style architecture. And there's a nice caveat that the authors have here. They say that the above categories are somewhat arbitrary and should not be cast in stone. The basic point is that Japanese architecture went through a maturation process after the introduction of Western styles. Some architects went even further to design new blended forms that were neither strictly Western nor Japanese, but original syntheses. Today, many Japanese architects continue to take their inspiration from both Western and Eastern traditions and are winning an international reputation as a consequence. In the next three chapters, as I mentioned, we talk about inns in the traditional style, uh, temples and shrines in the traditional style, and um, residential architecture in the tr traditional style. So these are buildings built in the modern day. So this was, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, but they still retain that traditional uh, Japanese style. And I'm going to read two passages in depth because they explain what my house looks like. Because I, I spoke with a Japanese carpenter and we have an intuition that the house that I've bought is, um, it was built in the Meiji era, sorry, in the Meiji restoration period. This passage will explain 
pretty well the basic characteristics of the house. So the historical background. Um, what are commonly known as traditional houses are descendants of the Shoin and Sukiya styles that were developed by the aristocracy in classical and feudal times, and adapted for wealthy urbanites in the Edo period. In addition to the aristocratic Shoin Sukiya tradition, there were also farmhouses, called minka, and townhouses, called machia. But by the latter part of the Edo period, wealthy families, regardless of their occupation and whether they lived in cities, towns, or villages, dwelt in houses that incorporated a scaled-down version of many features typical of the aristocratic tradition. What are these basic characteristics? So these modern traditional houses typically have a wooden post and beam frame that supports the roof, so check for that in my house. Vertical members of the structure rest on foundation stones, and the areas between the posts are occupied with sliding doors or lattice work made of strips of bamboo or wood that are woven together and tied with straw or linen. And two, clay, two layers of clay are applied on each side of the mesh and then coated with shikui, a plaster made of lime, straw, or sand, glue, and water, to which color is sometimes added. And so that is also the case for my house. Uh, I think an, a good way to explain this is in the modern day, we have cement, but the problem with cement alone is that it's still susceptible to damage, especially earthquakes, because although it's a very strong material, it's not it's not so durable when it's under tension. And so the French invented an invention of reinforced concrete, where you have concrete, but it's also within the concrete are steel bars. Reinforced concrete is therefore very strong in both compression and tension forces. The Japanese have this, uh, they talked about this lattice work made up of bamboo that's tied with linen and straw. So you can think of that as the steel rebar, the steel bars. And then it says here, two layers of clay are applied on each side of the mesh and then coated with this plaster made of lime. And that you can think of as the concrete. And so this is a very, very primitive form of reinforced concrete, in my opinion. Okay, so next is the roof can be prote protected with a variety of materials, thatch, hinoki, bark shingles, bamboo, or slate, but is usually covered with tiles, due in part to regulations designed to make crowded urban areas less susceptible to fire. Peripheral areas have their own roofs. And so that, that is the case for the house. Um, it is a thatch house, actually, but then has been covered with tiles. Although it's not in an urban area, it's it's in the mountains, so there's there's nothing nearby. But I guess that is a fire regulation that was adopted nonetheless. Next, our exterior window and door openings are covered with panels that slide on adjacent tracks. The outside track consists of wood panels that can be closed to lock the house or to provide protection against severe weather. The next two tracks, which are optional, consist of sliding glass and screen panels, and the inside track consists of wooden frames covered with translucent rice paper, soji, that admit the light. Interior sliding doors are made of wooden frames covered with heavy paper, often painted or stenciled with natural scenes, people, birds, animals, or abstract designs. And in the case of my house, yes, there um we have the panels on the outside, and then the shoji, and then the interior sliding doors. One other thing I wanted to mention about the post and beam frame structure that's so cool is that the Japanese over their many millennia of building have come to learn that their land is susceptible to earthquakes. And so the post and beam structure allows 
houses to dance on top of the earth when it's shaking, and it often makes the houses less susceptible to earthquake damage. Uh, of course, there will be damage, and wood will have to be replaced, but because of the post and beam structure, you're, it's much more easy to just replace various pillars and beams to re-ensure the integrity of the structure, but at least you're not having an entire building collapse on you. The next section I'm going to read in detail is about the surroundings. So, the space around a traditional house is as important as the interior. Privacy is provided by a fence or wall that surrounds the property. Entry is through a gate, which can be relatively modest or a substantial structure with a roof, depending upon the wealth and status of the owner. So in the case of my house, there is no, there's no gate or fence or wall. I think partly because it's in the middle of the mountain, so there are very few neighbors, but also perhaps they did not have the wealth or status to justify such an entry. But in any case, they continue. The passageway from the gate to the main entrance of the house is where inhabitants switch from a public to a private mode in the sense of preparing themselves psychologically for returning to a refuge from the stress and distractions of the outside world. The basic ingredients for this passageway are water, rocks, trees, shrubs, stone lanterns, and a path. The secret of encouraging one to focus on the immediate surroundings is to provide an interesting environment in a limited amount of space. There are a number of ways of doing this. For example, a curved path provides a greater feeling of distance than a straight path, and irregular stepping stones are more interesting than a graveled or paved walkway. Other examples of sensual stimuli are colored carp swimming in a pond or water dripping into a stone basin from a natural bamboo pipe. The garden is distinct from the entry passageway. Ideally, it is located so that it can be viewed from one or more of the most important areas of the house, such as a guest room where visitors are entertained and where they may spend the night. In addition to providing a visually pleasing space, one of the basic functions of a garden is to create and maintain contact with nature. The garden should be designed in such a way that it takes on a different appearance with the coming of each new season, featuring greenery in the summer, colored leaves in the fall, snow on lanterns in the winter, and flowers in the spring. So all those beautiful details are aspirations for me to look up to and, and hopefully try to meet in the future. I will not go into the, the chapters about temples and shrines and inns in the traditional style, and that essentially brings us to the end of the book. There is one last chapter called Modern Architecture. They provide some very interesting discussions about underground construction because Japan has like an incredible underground world of, of shopping and commuting with their trains and different shopping malls underground, especially in the cities. And they also have some case studies of some major engineering feats, mostly in Tokyo, although there are a couple of gigantic buildings in Osaka too that they talk about. But I think what I like about this chapter is that it's really short. To me, I think the authors were being polite and they wanted to kind of give a nod to the modern architecture of Japan. But to me, I think it's a kind of a, a slap in the face to modern architecture because as I believe, it's generally very, very ugly and unnatural. And so I'm happy that the chapter is short, and I, and I hope they did that intentionally. I'll give a good example. They actually end the book with, this, with these two paragraphs. 
One of the most spectacular modern buildings in Japan is Umeda Sky Building in Osaka, completed in 1993. It consists of two 40-story skyscrapers connected by a floating garden observation deck that offers spectacular views of the city. Architect Hara Hiroshi's aim was to create a vast city in the air, composed of skyscrapers linked by escalators, footbridges, and hanging gardens. Although the present structure falls short of this dream, it has become one of Osaka's primary tourist destinations. Contemporary buildings, such as those described above, are a vivid reminder that Japan, though rooted in the distant past, is also a modern country that is responding to the architectural needs of today's society. To be honest, I think, as I said, I think the authors are being polite. I think if I were to read between the lines, I think that they might have written something akin to what Sir Roger Scruton would write, which would be much more of a scathing critique on modern architecture and how it's deadening to the soul and how it's really not responding to the needs of today's society, but rather expresses a dearth in the soul of architecture of the modern era. In any case, the book is fantastic. I highly recommend you grab this one. So far, it's it's the best book I've read on Japanese architecture um, from a like a, from a coherent perspective, where it kind of just brings all things together from prehistory up until today. I learned a great deal, and it's also a great travel companion. I think um, there's a lot of great architectural sites in the book that they highlight that, that you can read into because I did, definitely did not cover everything and those those sites are definitely worth exploring in, in in the flesh and so I hope that you can use this book as a recommendation guide for your travels and I hope you learn something new thank you very much I appreciate your support on Substack I'll see you next time on Local Japan <laughs>